So we continue to, to work through the, our, our Eucharistic preaching series. So I've, I've mentioned this, but I'll, I'll just keep mentioning it. Um, a few years ago, the bishops of the United States received some data from a survey that was taken among Catholic Christians living in the United States. And uh, the survey results were staggering, uh, revealing that something like 70% of Catholic Christians don't believe what the church teaches about the Eucharist. Uh, which is, is wild because we say that this is the high point of our faith, that, that there's nothing better than this in our faith. Like this is, this is the high point and everything else flows from it. So 70% of Catholics don't even believe it in, in the United States. And, and the, to my mind, the more staggering number was that only 50% of Catholics even understand what the church teaches about what takes place at the mass. You know, like from my perspective as, as, a, as a pastor, a priest, I can't force anyone to believe this. But, but if I'm not communicating to people what it is that we teach, then, then why on earth would I expect them to believe it, right? I, I, I can't just expect people to have these mystical revelations where it's like, oh, of course I believe this, you know, even though I've never been taught. From my perspective, it's like, well, let's, let's teach this. So the bishops decided to do this Eucharistic revival. Uh, and a part of the Eucharistic revival, Bishop Cousins, our bishop in Crookston here, decided to uh, change the mass readings for the month of October uh, so that we could talk about the Eucharist more clearly, more directly about what it is that we believe. So we've been highlighting different aspects of what we believe about the Holy Eucharist uh, during this month. And so now we have, we're in our second to last one. We've got one more coming uh, next week. And, um, and so that's what we're doing. And, and I laid out my hopes for, for this series, which from my perspective, my hope is just to be able to teach and explain clearly what it is we believe as Catholic Christians about, what takes place at the altar, as well as uh, the consequences of that. And then beyond that, of course, I hope that you believe it, but I can't force you to do that. That's, that's for you to, to figure out. Um, but, but very clearly, um, just what, what is it that we believe takes place? So obviously I'll explain what I'm gonna explain during this homily, but just very clearly, as Catholic Christians, we believe that when the priest says the words that Jesus said at the Last Supper over the bread and the wine, he prays over them, uh, over the bread and the wine, we believe that there's a real change that takes place. That the bread and the wine, even though they still look and smell and taste and feel like bread and wine, there is a, a miraculous grace of God that changes them into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. So that there's actually no more bread and there's no more wine left on the altar, but they have been changed entirely. So that those who are able to receive Holy Communion, when they come forward to receive communion, they're not receiving just some symbolic piece of bread, but, but they're receiving the very body and blood of Jesus himself, who gives himself to us in this new covenant, which we'll, we'll talk about today, this, this word covenant. Anyway, so that's, that's what we believe. Now, today, we're gonna, we're gonna move and, and talk about something. And today's homily, just as a little disclaimer, today's homily is gonna be quite sharp. Um, it's, it's, it's gonna potentially, at least for some of us anyway, it might sting a lot. Uh, and part of that I can understand is because you haven't been taught it before. We're, we're talking about something today that, that priests, for, for whatever reasons, for, for years, decades maybe, just haven't really talked about very much. And so now to hear the teaching, and maybe you could kind of pick up some of it from, from our readings, to hear the teaching, it's like, whoa, 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 this is, this is different. So, so if, you, if you end up leaving today angry, I understand. Um, and at the same time, as your pastor, I'm responsible for the souls of my parishioners, which includes you. And part of my own responsibility for my soul is caring for your souls, even though sometimes caring for your souls might not be the most pleasant experience for, for all of us. So anyway, so with that, let's, let's get in. The first part of the homily will not be unpleasant. It'll, it'll be, I think, hopefully so pleasant that it will help us understand the unpleasantness of, of the second half. So 
we know that in the scriptures, God establishes covenants. We, we heard this in our first reading towards, towards the end, right? The, uh, Moses sprinkling the blood. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all, his, all words of his. So we'll talk more about the covenants in a minute. But, but first, like, what, what is a covenant? So a covenant, I think the best, the best way to explain it is that it's a formal, solemn, binding agreement that I make, or that, that two or more people make together. That they're binding each other together in this solemn, formal kind of way. Which, which is different than like establishing a contract, right? So a contract is like, I pay you $20 and you mow my lawn, right? Or we make this agreement, like if you mow my lawn, I'll pay you $20. Like that's a contract, which we're both free to walk away from at any given time without any real consequences. I might be upset with you because you didn't, you didn't mow my lawn, but I got to keep my $20, you know? So like, it's not that big of a deal. With, with, a, with a covenant, it's something that's much more serious. It's not just like an exchange of goods, but it's that I give myself to you and you give yourself to me in return. That we're binding ourselves to each other, which of course sounds like something, right? It sounds like something we all know or have experiences of, which is marriage, right? That, that when a, a man and a woman come together, they decide to marry each other. What do they do? They take a solemn oath that does what? That binds themselves to each other. They, they promise, they say, I will be faithful to you in good times and in bad. I will love you in sickness and in health, to love you and honor you all the days of my life, right? Like this, this solemn formula that we follow, and as we do this, we believe that the husband and the wife, they're bound up with each other, so now they can say, actually, like, I belong to you and you belong to me. It's, 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 it's a really lovely thing. And so this is, this is what the Lord does. So that, that uh, the, the two people in this covenant of marriage, they do what? It says, scripture says that the, the two become one flesh. That there's a new union of people that, that is uh, different, different than, than the, the two separate to themselves. There's a communion that takes place. So that's, that's like what a covenant is. It's, it's a uniting of two people so that they become one ultimately. So when we're talking about the Lord establishing covenants with his people, we know he does this actually throughout scripture. He does this in the Old Testament with, with like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. He establishes these covenants with them. And what does he do in these covenants? Well, he says to them, I have chosen you to be my special possession. And so therefore, I'm going to give myself to you and to your cause. And I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to bind myself up with you so that wherever you are, I myself will be. And I want you to bind yourself to me in return so that, so that wherever I am, you know to call on my name. Right? This, this beautiful relationship that, that is meant to take place for God's people. And he does this, like I said, throughout, throughout history. He says, I am, your, I am your God and you are my people. But then what happens is, is Jesus comes, and Jesus, of course, as Christians, we believe Jesus is God. He's God become flesh. Uh, and so Jesus comes, and he establishes something else. He establishes a new covenant. And in that new covenant, what does he do? Well, he, he establishes the new covenant where? At the Last Supper, where he says, take this and eat it. This is my body. Take this and drink it. This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant. So that, so that what's he doing? He's giving himself to his people. And, and it's not like in a spiritual kind of way, like, like in the past, like God could spiritually give himself to his people and still bind them and it was real. But now Jesus is saying, no, like I want you to take my body into your body. I'm giving myself to you entirely in this covenantal relationship, which that in itself is, is something that we, we got to like, we got to let ourselves just reflect on, on that incredible thing that, that when we're able to receive holy communion, if we're able to, what happens? Jesus and I, Jesus and you become one. 
this is like incredible. I, I, I guess we, we, have to, we have to first agree, and hopefully we do agree, that, that God is infinitely above us, right? Like, he's, it, it, we can't compare ourselves to him ultimately because he's so far above us. And yet, what does he do? He comes down to us and he gives himself to us. He, we don't deserve that. He doesn't have to do that, but he chooses to do so. And that's incredible. And that's what we believe takes place at Mass, that, that the Lord is giving his body and his blood to us in Holy Communion so that, so that we become one with him. It's like incredible just to think about that. Now, now this, is, this is where things turn a bit and, and there's a shift. This is where the, the, the sting might come. Um, is this, that something we don't talk about much at all in the church today is that when it comes to covenants, there are conditions applied to them or attached to them. So that if I don't keep the conditions of the covenant, then I, I lose that relationship. Or if I don't keep the conditions, I don't even get to enter into it. We talk, we talk in the church a lot about how, how God loves us unconditionally. And that's true, that, that he does love each and every one of us without condition. We can't do anything to earn his love. And we can't do anything to lose his love. He, Jesus dies for everybody, whether they want to accept him or not accept him. But as far as entering into the covenants, it, this is absolutely true that, that there are conditions attached. And if the conditions are not fulfilled, what happens? The covenant is broken. And we know that if a covenant is ever broken, that there are grave consequences to that. I, I know this personally. My parents are divorced. My brother is divorced. I know that there are grave consequences whenever someone decides who's entered into a covenant, they decide, I just don't want to be a part of this anymore. And, and so there's a break there. And the break is not just for these two people, but it's, it's for the people around them. There, there are broken relationships. There are disordered relationships that take the place of, of this union, unified relationship. There are broken hearts that enter into the story. When a covenant is broken, there are serious and grave consequences to those things. And so like that in itself shows us that there are conditions attached to them. And in fact, we, we can look more closely at our, at our readings here. So, so the, our first reading comes from Exodus 24, where, where again, the, Moses sprinkles the blood of the covenant on the people. And it says, okay, well, this is, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made. And at the beginning of the reading, we heard, proclaimed the people answering as, as Moses came to them and he related the words and ordinances of the Lord. In other words, he related the laws of the Lord, the laws that God had established as saying like, look, I want you to be my covenant people. In fact, we can go back to Exodus chapter 19, and we can see the Lord says this. He says, okay, look, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You saw how I took care of them for you and how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, he says, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own special possession among all peoples. If you will obey my voice you're going to be my people, which begs the question, well, what if they don't obey his voice? Then they won't be his special people, right? There's, there's a, a condition attached to the covenant. And then the rest of chapter 19 and chapter 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 are all the conditions that the Lord lays, the laws, the ordinances that the Lord lays on the people saying, look, if you want, if you want me to be your God and you want to be my people, if you want to be bound up with me, here are the ordinances that I have laid out for you. And so the people say, we will do everything that the Lord has told us. 
But right? it, it says this right here, like, okay, we understand that if, if we want to be in covenant with God, we have to keep the conditions that he has established for this covenant. And if we don't do it, then we know that the, the covenant is going to be broken. And if it's broken, then there are grave consequences to that. So every covenant that's established, including the covenant that Jesus establishes, right? We heard this in our gospel. Listen again to what Jesus says. He lays out a very clear condition about being in covenant with him. He says this, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have life. That's a condition. Right? Because so we could ask then, well, what if, what if a person doesn't eat the flesh and blood of Jesus? Well, he says you don't have life within you. What are the conditions for entering into covenant with him? Well, there, there are a couple of places in the Gospels where he says, unless you do this, you will not enter the kingdom. Or unless you do this, you will not have life. And this is one of them. And of course, he gives us the new covenant at the Last Supper where he says, take it and eat it. Take it and drink it. And so if I, if I don't do that, then I don't actually have life. Now, now, what happens is our tendency is to say, well... Jesus didn't really mean that, right? Because we, we want to think about the people in our lives who are, who are not practicing Catholics. We want to think about people in our lives who are not Catholic. We want to think about the people in our lives who, who can't come forward to receive Holy Communion because they're not in a state of grace. And we want to say, well, Jesus, you didn't say that you know, about everyone. This is a pretty straightforward condition. In fact, the people respond by saying what? They respond by saying, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? There's this whole dialogue that goes on of just like, no way, no way. Does he, he can't give us his flesh to eat. That doesn't work that way. But you notice Jesus, in response to their, their saying this is difficult, he doesn't then stop and say, oh, well, let me explain it in a different way so that you can understand. I'm just, I'm just speaking symbolically. He doesn't do that. Instead, what does he say? He's like, look, I know this is surprising to you, but the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and truth. I'm not, I'm not backing down from this, he's saying. Look, I've told you, actually, that, that there are some among you who just don't believe in me. You might have been pretending up to this point, but you don't actually believe, he's saying. I've told you, actually, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. He doesn't, he doesn't back down, but instead he doubles down. So then it says what? As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer walked with him. Do you hear this? Like Jesus is, is letting his disciples abandon him and reject him because he's so serious about what he's teaching about how we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. If people are abandoning Jesus, if they're walking away from him and returning to their former way of life, what does that mean? It means they're walking away from Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the only way to the Father. So if they're walking away from Jesus, they're walking away from the Father, which means they're walking away from heaven. They're walking toward their damnation, and Jesus allows them to go. And it's not just that he allows them to go, but he then turns to the 12, his 12 apostles, his closest friends, the people that are the leaders of his church, and he says to them, what? Do you also want to leave? I, 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 don't, I don't want to lose you, but I'm not changing what I've just taught. Do you also want to go? And what's Peter's response? Lord, Lord, where would we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life, right? It's as though Peter is saying, like, look, we, this is a hard saying. It's true, but, but Lord, you've laid out the conditions for covenant, and, and we want to keep those conditions because whatever you have said, you, you're the one who's leading us into eternal life. So I, I can't imagine walking away from it. That's what, that's what Peter is saying, right? So, so if we want to be in covenantal relationship with the Lord, to share a communion with him, 
then we have to do what? We have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is, this is so important. Now, now that's, that's sharp in itself, right? That's sharp in itself, but it actually gets even harder because uh, what, what, G, uh, what Paul says in our second reading is actually even more difficult. He's, he's laying out for the people actually that, that just because you eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus, the son of man, just because you share in this table sacrifice, that doesn't actually mean that you're gonna receive eternal life. Paul is actually laying out for us. He's like, it's actually possible for you to receive and eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus and actually still eat and drink what? Judgment upon yourself. Judgment in a negative sense, in an unpleasant sense. Listen to what he says. Um, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. Another, another maybe more literal way of saying this is that whoever eats, the, uh, excuse me, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? Look, if, he's saying, look, if you come forward to receive Holy Communion in an unworthy manner, You're not actually receiving the covenant of the Lord, but you're eating and drinking your own judgment, which is gonna send you into damnation. It's hard, right? We need to be worthy. So so if that's the case, like what 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 do I do? Like how do I how do I know whether I'm in a worthy state or whether I'm in an unworthy state? And this we can rely, of course, on on, on what Paul teaches. We can also rely on the history of the church. Christians, from from the time of Jesus onward, Christians have always understood that what makes us unworthy to receive the Holy Eucharist, what makes us unworthy to eat and drink the flesh and blood of Jesus, is our own personal choice to commit mortal sins. Those grave sins, which is, again, another thing that we don't talk about very much in the church today, that there are two different kinds of sins. There are what's called venial sins, sins which are still offensive to the Lord, but they're not sins that break the union with him. they, They harm the relationship, but they don't destroy the relationship. And then there are grave mortal sins, which when we choose to commit those sins, it ruptures the relationship in such a way that is not, it's irreparable. It breaks the relationship with the Lord. And so if our relationship with the Lord is broken, then we can't come back into communion with him. So when we're talking about mortal sins, we're we're talking about certain sins that are so grave, so offensive to the Lord that they break our relationship. Now, I know what can happen when we hear about this. We think, oh, he must be talking about murder, right? Well, I haven't killed anyone, so I'm okay. But you have to understand the church teaches that mortal sin is, it's much more than just murder. There are basic things like missing Sunday mass, or mass on holy days of obligation is a mortal sin. Committing the sin of, of scandal, of leading other people, telling other people, oh, you don't have to worry about that. The Lord doesn't mind. That's a scandalous thing, and that's a grave mortal sin. Committing illicit sexual behavior, whether in the context of marriage or especially outside the context of marriage, is a grave mortal sin. Committing the sin of alcohol abuse intentionally drinking more than you ought to, committing the sin of adultery, of course. And of course, that is gonna include the sin of murder. It's gonna include the sin of abortion or supporting people who have abortions. Going to those dark websites online that lead you into illicit sexual sins. Right? And there's, there's more than that. And, and I've said this a bunch of times and I'm gonna keep saying it. I don't know your personal lives well enough to know what, what your sins look like. I know what my own sins look like and I don't really know what your sins look like. But at the same time, what I do know is that I know that we haven't spoken about mortal sin and we haven't spoken especially about the reality that if I have committed a mortal sin, I, I can't 
present myself for Holy Communion unless that mortal sin is washed clean by the Lord. Because if I present myself to the Lord for Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin, St. Paul says what? I eat and drink judgment on myself, which is a tragic thing that I've taken the moment of my life that is meant to be the best moment of my life, the, the highest, like the most incredible moment where I am fully united with the Lord Jesus. I've taken that moment and I've led it to be the worst moment of my life where I've decided to eat and drink judgment, the judgment of the Lord upon myself. And that's a sad and a tragic thing. I know, I know this is hard. I know this is difficult. I know that it's sharp. And I know this partially because I know we haven't spoken about it. And yet, and yet this is exactly what the Bible teaches. And so from my perspective, I, I don't know how I couldn't talk about it. And I don't know what your previous priests have spoken about before. I don't know how they've spoken about this. But what I do know is that in a general way, priests and bishops in the church have neglected to talk about this. And I don't necessarily know why. I could think of some reasons. Maybe there's a sense of fear, right? Of, of like, well, if I talk about this, people might get really angry and just not come back. I understand that. If I talk about this, people might not like me. They might not pay attention anymore. I understand that. And yet at the same time as your pastor, I'm responsible for caring for your soul. And sometimes caring for your soul, it demands that I give a hard warning. And for me, caring about your soul is far more important than you liking me. So I have to talk about it. Other times I think priests have this mentality like, well, if we just convince them that Catholicism is the right way to go, then maybe they'll figure it out for themselves. But again, the statistics show that most Catholics don't go to confession. Most Catholics don't repent of their sins. A lot of Catholics present themselves for Holy Communion in an unworthy manner. And that's a tragic thing. And this is, this is where things can become good, is that if we find that we're in a state of mortal sin, the Lord has given us another tool so that we can have our mortal sin forgiven, so that we can come back into covenantal relationship with Him. And that other tool is the Sacrament of Reconciliation where I can go and I can repent of my sins in an incredibly confidential, private manner, and I can receive the forgiveness of my sins and be brought back into covenantal relationship so that then I can do what? I can present myself for Holy Communion in a worthy manner according to the conditions that the Lord has established. And in that moment, then, then this can be the best moment of my life where I can actually have, have confidence that I'm sharing a real union with the Lord Jesus in his new covenant relationship, and, and that's, that's the best thing.